Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, part of the New Books Network. This week, we're going to be talking to Professor Paola Bertucci about her new book, Artisanal Enlightenment, Science and the Mechanical Arts in Old Regime France, out this year from Yale University Press. Paola Bertucci is Associate Professor of History in the History of Medicine at Yale University. Welcome, Paola, to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Hi, Lance. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we get into your book, I'd like to ask you a little bit about how you came to this project and your background as a scholar of the history of science. Sure. So I am a scholar of the 18th century. In particular, I'm interested in science, technology and medicine during the 18th century in Europe, mostly France, Britain and Italy. And my previous work focused on the public culture of science, on uh, scientific spectacles, the um, involvement of the human body in experimentation. And when I started working on 18th century France, I, as anyone else who works on uh, science in the 18th century in France, um, came across a um, mysterious um, society called the Société des Arts, the Society of the Arts, that was mostly composed of artisans, not exclusively, but mostly. And there were very few sources. And this society was, um, as I said, uh, known to various scholars, but it was impossible to tell a broader story about it just because the source were so few. Uh, In parallel, I was working on an 18th century physicist who was very popular at the time and who had been a member of this society. And I was very lucky one day a um, mathematician uh, based in France emailed me saying that he had found a private archive in Germany 
with lots of documents related to the Société des Arts and that he'd been allowed to go to Germany, take photos of the um, documents. And he wanted to know if I'd be interested in co-authoring an article with him on the Société des Arts based on these new documents. And this was very, very exciting to me. Uh, so, of course, I accepted. And as I started working on these documents, I realized that beyond the Société des Arts, there was something uh, larger that I wanted to um, explore and that these documents were pointing to, which had to do with this particular figure, historical figure, who was an artisan in the sense that he worked on, he lived on the work of the hands. At the same time, he was learned and um, did not understand himself as other artisans. He defined himself as artists, so they use um, in 18th century documents, uh, letters, books, um, they use the word artiste, which could be translated as artist, but in a very different sense than uh, we do today. So the artist was um, a learned artisan, an artisan endowed with esprit. Esprit in French uh, is a very difficult word to translate. It basically, basically captures qualities such as wit, discernment, politeness, judgment. And so by defining themselves as artisans with esprit, these artists were really saying that not only could they make important um, devices, think about machines, very important machines, scientific instruments, but they were also contributing to knowledge making. And therefore they could offer the French state a kind of expertise that not even the savant, the equivalent of scientists today, could offer because they were uh, so grounded in theory, so interested in theory that they lose sight of the uh, material limitations and material possibilities that working with the hands uh, offered. And so I, um, I wrote uh, the article with uh, this French colleague whom I never met in person. Uh, and then I asked him if it was okay for him if I went on writing a book that would use these documents and then uh, go beyond uh, with the idea of foregrounding the world of the mechanical arts in the uh, history of the Enlightenment. He, of course, was happy with this. And this is how it all came about. Hmm. And so in the book, you write that this idea of the artiste and the society arts really comes out in opposition to uh, how savants we're, were talking about the, the arts uh, prior. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how the arts were conceived in the in the late 17th century in France. Yes, so um, in late 17th century France, something very important happens, which is the, the establishment of one of the first scientific academies in, Europe's, uh, in Europe, the French Academy of Sciences. 
And members of these Academy of Sciences were mathematicians, astronomers, chemists. They were people who, they were savant. In other words, learned people who did not make a living uh, out of the work of their hands. Artisans who, on the contrary, made a living on the work of their hands were excluded explicitly from membership in the Academy of Science. Now, this academy uh, was had a very important role in the French state because it was established by the French Prime Minister Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who had a vision for the French state uh, in coordination, in collaboration with the French king that at the time was the Sun King, Louis XIV. And so he, Colbert believed that this Academy of Sciences would contribute to making France, um, establishing France as a leader in commercial and imperial enterprises. And so he understood that, uh, he understood science, scientific knowledge as very important to the colonial and imperial projects of the French state. And that's why he established the Academy of Science as an institution of the state. Uh, members were salaried, unlike the equivalent case in Britain, where we have the Royal Society, um, uh, that whose members were not paid by the British Crown. Whereas in France, these academicians were paid uh, by the state and they could not make money from other activities. And so artisans were excluded. And what happens uh, through um, in the course of the early history of the French Academy of Sciences is that Colbert asked its members to focus on the world of the mechanical arts, of the crafts, arts and crafts that exist mostly in France, though not exclusively. And so one of the first projects that these academicians are asked to complete is an encyclopedic, uh, is an encyclopedia of the arts and crafts. The idea being that uh, you could write down everything that needs to be known on the crafts and arts that exist in France. And the aim of this work was twofold. On the one hand, it was the preservation of knowledge in the sense that uh, all these crafts and arts would be written down would be described in writing and through illustrations. So this uh, technical knowledge would not get lost, unlike previous knowledge, ancient knowledge that had been uh, lost, they went, did got lost. For example, they had in mind the fallen empires, the big empires like the Roman empires and all the works of engineering that to a large extent, who, the knowledge of which to a large extent had gotten lost. And so on the one hand, these encyclopedic uh, projects would fulfill the goal of preserving technical knowledge. On the other hand, uh, these projects would also establish the best practices. And so they would um, 
they would promote emulation in artisans and craftsmen who would refer to these works and look up to these works as the best way of making the particular uh, artifacts that individual artisans uh, were, were making. And it's very interesting that these projects are taken seriously by a number of academicians. At the same time, they are incredibly difficult to complete. And they are difficult to complete in part because um, these academicians were not practicing artisans themselves. And so they had to um, find ways of uh, getting this knowledge from artisans. And so they entered uh, workshops, they talked to artisans, and um, they represented artisans as people who were incredibly confused when it came to articulating uh, in words their own practice, how they made things, the tool, even the tools that they were using, they say, uh, the academicians say uh, that artisans use the same term to indicate several tools or um, many words to indicate the same tool. So they, and this is a, a motif that will be um, in the uh, most famous encyclopedia of the 18th century, which is Diderot's and D'Alembert's um, Encyclopédie, that very much is in continuity with um, these encyclopedic projects pursued initially uh, by the Academy of Sciences. And, um, and so um, we have this incredible difficulty in completing these encyclopedic projects. And uh, there is a lot of work that is carried out by academicians at the same time is never published because is never complete. Um, and this is when um, words about these encyclopedic projects and research uh, goes out in Paris and artisans, learned, learned artisans start to understand that there is a, an interest on the part of the French state on their own uh, art and they think they should be the ones who produce this kind of written work not the academicians who are not really um, don't, who don't really have the expertise to understand how artisanal practice actually works oh, oh sorry so sorry sorry so, so your question is artists and savants. So uh, we, with that, uh, with the uh, artisans um, being a, becoming more and more aware of this interest on the part of the French state in their uh, practices, in their crafts, in their arts, there is this tension between the theory-inclined um, uh, academician who can write and can write well because they have the kind of education that allows them to write well, at the same time can really understand uh, what is going on in a workshop. And the artist, the learned artisan who presents himself as the one who can 
write, maybe not as well as the savant, at the same time, they can write about their own art because they are educated and they are practicing artisans. And so the artist presents himself as uh, someone who is different at, at once from the savant because the savant knows only the theory. At the same time, the artist is more than an artisan because the artisan cannot write, is not polite, does not have esprit. And so there is all this flourishing of uh, publications authored by artists, by artisans, by learned artisans, who descri that describe their own art. At the same time, while describing, they are also representing the artist as someone whose knowledge, whose expertise is very useful to the French state, exactly because the artist can produce the best machines that the French state needs, the best materials that the French state needs to pursue these projects of imperial expansion, imperial commercial colonial expansion. So think, for example, of methods for find, finding longitude at sea or uh, materials and methods for producing anchors that would not break and um, other things, weapons and other things like this that um, the artists really um, think they can, um, it's not just that they can make, but they can articulate the rules for making um, these objects the best possible way. And so writing is not just a description of existing practices. Writing is very important for defining the state of the art, the best practice, something that anyone else should emulate, should strive to do. And so this is why the artist feels so challenged by the savant's interest in the, in the mechanical arts. They feel um, that the representation the savant may offer in these encyclopedic projects that does not really capture the best practice. Yeah, and related to that is the idea of innovation and invention, and uh, how the how new ideas come about, how practices get improved. What's the difference between the ways that savants are thinking of improvement and the ways that the artists are conceiving it? Yes, this is a very important uh, notion. So improvement is not the same as. Uh, innovation at this time. Uh, and that's very important, even though it's difficult for us to understand because we, uh, we uh, tend to conflate the, the two terms. Um, improvement really is the, for um, 18th century um, authors on the arts, so whether academicians or um, artisans. <clears throat> The way they understand improvement is really this notion of taking any craft to the best possible level. They call it, uh, they, in French, they don't even use the word improvement. Uh, the French would be uh, the perfecting of the art. So this 
idea that each art can reach its best potential um, through research on materials, best practices, best training uh, of artisans, so best apprenticeship, etc. Innovation, on the other hand, is something that is new. And new, and this is something the artists really uh, underscore um, more and more, you know, often, very often, the new is something that is easy to achieve. Anyone, they say, can be an inventor. Anyone can contribute something that no one else has done before. But is this useful? So the key word that distinguishes um, at the end, in the end improvement from innovation is usefulness. Improvement is made of two very important components. One, and they are really equally important, one is the preservation of knowledge. So nothing that we know about artisanal practice should get lost. That is very important. The, the second thing is innovation. But innovation, so invention, something that is new, but is new and useful at the same time. If you can combine these two things, then you do have a, the perfection of the art, of any art, you, you do have improvement. And this is often articulated with the French state in mind. So what these learned artisans are trying to achieve is um, getting the French state, getting positions for themselves in the... Um, um, in the offices of the French state where decision-making happens about, um, for example, technological um, development happens. So there is in particular one office that is called the Bureau of Commerce where decisions about the crafts are made and um, no artisan has a, a, was allowed uh, to serve in these offices. On the contrary, the Bureau of Commerce relied on the expertise of the academicians of Savant in order to make decisions. And um, these learned artisans saw that as a very dangerous practice because they thought that academicians were not qualified to evaluate inventions because they were often struck by the new, by something that was new, and they did not realize that it was new, yes, but it was at the same time useless. And I'll give you a very famous example, and I think it, it makes this very clear. This has to do with the problem of finding longitude at sea. This is a, a very important problem for um, imperial powers at the time. It's, in, it's very important to know where you are at sea. And whereas, and you use two coordinates, one is called latitude, the other one is longitude. Latitude is easy to find, you need some astronomical instruments. Longitude is complicated and there was no chronometer at the time, which is what you really need, at least um, according to our knowledge today, to find longitude. And um, this was an open problem. The British, 
British Crown had established a prize for someone who would solve the problem of finding longitude at sea, um, the French state had not done similar things. But um, many watch and clockmakers were working on, uh, on this. And the problem was that you cannot keep time at sea because if you use a pendulum clock, for obvious reason, um, you cannot uh, guarantee that the pendulum will keep time as it should because of the vibrations and the movement of the ship. If you have a watch, given the technology and the materials of the time, uh, you will lose um, the time soon because of the humidity, of friction, the composition, the very composition of, of watches. And so, um, uh, Huygens, a scientist, mat mathematician, a natural philosopher, uh, Christian Huygens, came up with a mathematical solution to this problem. He um, noticed that a mathematical curve called cycloid uh, was such that if a pendulum could be made to oscillate around, uh, along this curve rather than along a circle as a pendulum would normally do, then even in uh, on, at, at sea, so on a ship where the oscillations would change in amplitude, um, the um, um, period of, of oscillation would stay, stay the same. This basically means that if, if you can build a pendulum um, that moves along a cycloid, you can keep track of the time that you spent uh, aboard from the moment you left the first place to the moment when you're reading the time. And this is basically what you need together with a few other things to find longitude at sea. So on paper, this was a brilliant solution. And there was almost an obsessive attempt at building the clock that um, would make the pendulum move along this cycloid. And then what we find in writings by artists is a criticism of this emphasis on the cycloid because they say the amount of gears we would need to make a pendulum oscillate around along a cycloid would make it so pointless, so useless, that it's, a ju it's just a waste of time to focus on this problem. So the solution should come from something else, and they had a few ideas, and they wanted the French state to support their ideas by instituted, instituting not a prize of the same kind as the one that the British Crown had established, but a, um, an incentive, sort of financial support for groups of artisans who would dedicate themselves to this research. So the difference being that these artists criticize the notion that invention comes from individual people, from ingenious individuals. Inventions come from, they occur, inventions occur every time in workshops, 
but it's up to the ingenious artist, artisan, to understand when that particular invention is useful and also to rely, the ability to rely uh, on other artisans' work. So they see this as a collective enterprise where different kind of expertise, different kind of expertise, for example, if you need to build a watch that would keep time for extended time periods, you don't need only a watchmaker, you need also a goldsmith, other um, artisans who work on metals because they would provide the expertise on materials that you need. So it's a, it's a, it's a different understanding of research where um, um, different kinds of expertise come together with, um, the, same, with the same goal of finding a solution. So it's a sort of teamwork, um, a project-based uh, work that these art artisans are envisioning. Their project, this kind of state-funded research project, never happens in France. And as it is well known, um, the problem of longitude would be solved uh, in England um, by John Harrison. So, uh, but much later, whereas in these early moments, we are talking about the 18, uh, sorry, the 1720s here, 1720s and 30s, so much earlier, there was this attempt of making longitude a problem that could be solved by teamwork. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. <clears throat> yeah, and so keeping that in mind, I'm thinking a bit about the formation of the Society of, of Arts and um, how it becomes defined which arts are included. Uh, for instance, are there arts that are, are not improvable or for some reason are not included within the society, such as I'm, I'm thinking animal husbandry or midwifery or um, uh, cabinet making or something. Yeah, this is a very important question. So this is one of the underlying themes of the book. Um, so when you have the composition of a society, but also when you have an encyclopedic project, what gets included um, is almost less interesting than what gets excluded or you know what gets excluded is as interesting as what gets included and so in the choices of the society 
the desert, we see really some priorities, uh, striking priorities. And so, for example, one priority is uh, watch and clock making. And this is not a coincidence, of course, but also a number of arts that are related to uh, navigation. So all these um, activities that would serve the French state. So it's not a coincidence that we don't have all the crafts represented. We don't have pharmacy, for example, a very powerful guild in Paris at the time. And this is completely absent uh, from the Société des Arts. <clears throat> so the attempt attempt there was not to put together every single um, um, art or craft, but rather to create some uh, new connections among the crafts and some branches of um, natural knowledge, for example, astronomy or chemistry. Um, the other possibility, I haven't found enough sources to um, explicitly say this, but I'm in, in the footnote here and there, I do suggest that another possible um, a goal of the Société, at least a group of uh, Société members, was to pursue alchemical uh, projects, alchemical work, really with the idea of uh, transmuting base metals into gold. And this was very tempting at the time of financial disaster. These are the years that follow um, the financial bubble um, initiated by John Law, who was um, the equivalent of a finance minister for um, France. <clears throat> And the regent at the time, we don't have a king, we have a regent, Duke d'Orléans. Uh, he believed in alchemy, he worked as an alchemist himself. And uh, he appointed the director of the Royal Mint in Paris, who was an alchemist too. Um, sorry, he appointed um, this alchemist as director of the Mint, and then he's also a member of the Société des Arts, together with a number of essayers and other chemists who are involved with alchemy. So it's very tempting to see, at least for a few years, the Société as this secret association of people who were um, carrying out alchemical work on behalf, possibly, of the regent. I don't think that this is the full story of the Societe. Uh, on the contrary, I think the Societe was doing um, a lot of work that was not secret at all. Um, but uh, it, it's another possibility. <clears throat> so, so then why did the Society of the Arts not last? Yes, this is uh, another uh, Wonderful question. So the Société des Arts was emulating, the, or was trying to achieve the status that the Academy of Science had. In other words, the Société des Arts wanted to become an academy, a, a, an institution of the state, uh, possibly with uh, salaried members, just like the academicians. <clears throat> and 
At the beginning of its existence, the members were right in having that hope because the Société obtained the status of Société. Société meant was a title that was conferred to associations that could potentially become academies. The academies in France were, uh, in, in Paris at least, were sponsored by the state. So there was a, an optimistic m moment. They also had a patron, um, <clears throat> the Comte de Clermont, who uh, was the head, so to speak, of the, of the Société des Arts. Um, but in the course of time, the expectation that the Société would become an academy started to wane for many reasons. It would be too long to list here, um, contingent in part, but also uh, intrinsic to the composition of the Société. The Société um, was made mostly by by these artists, self-defined artists, so learned artisans, and they introduced some um, practices of um, discrimination internal to the Société, basically, that were at odds with the um, rules of, uh, or rather with the ethos of collaboration that the Société was um, advocating. And so this discrimination was carried out in particular against artisans who were not regarded as artists, whose craft was not regarded as equally relevant to the uh, imperial and economic expansion of the French state. And so paradoxically, the Société des Arts, who, that presents itself as this incredibly open minded association where artisans work together with savant and together with noble, with aristocrats, um, in, with the common goal of producing useful knowledge, useful for the French state. Um, paradoxically, it ends up being a, a place where individual uh, artisans pursue the old uh, trajectory, the old story of uh, social ascent at the expense of these uh, collaborative ethos that they had uh, introduced in, in the public sphere, basically. And so um, the society collapsed on itself. It has a long life, it's much longer than previously known, I, I document in in, in the book, but it does undermine itself because it um, suffers from this paradox. You know, the artist really captures this paradox on the one hand, um, he is advocate, and I use the, the pronoun, the masculine here, because these are all men. Um, there is no explicit exclusion of women, but it is a homosocial space where um, only men uh, um, are allowed, not allowed, but they, where only men uh, work and meet. Um, so the artist, on the one hand, is advocating for the work of the hand. He's saying that by using the hand and the senses in general, 
um, artisans have a special knowledge uh, and, and they can contribute in unique ways to the uh, um, expansion of the French state, to the projects of the French state. At the same time, they are also saying, they are also pursuing career uh, goals. They are also pursuing, um, um, they are trying to get better positions for themselves, better social status in a society that is very static. Uh, it's very uncommon for an artisan to become, um, I don't even say a nobleman, even though in rare cases it did happen, but even to serve the state in any formal function. <clears throat> but there were privileged uh, positions, like being the clockmaker to the king, being uh, lodged at the Louvre, where special artisans and art artists uh, worked without having to um, subscribe to the rules of the guild. So artisans knew that if you could distinguish yourself in this society, you would individually benefit and benefit a lot. And so um, on the one hand, there is this collective uh, pursuit, but then in the end, it breaks down to individual um, trajectories and the uh, pursuit of individual advantages and privileges. And so it really, the Societe as a collective project collapses. Yeah. <clears throat> and as we get then deeper into the 18th century, machines and especially manufacturing machines begin to play a, a larger role in the manual arts. How do these play into the politics of technical knowledge? Of? Sorry, Excuse I didn't hear the question. Oh, sorry, we might have cut out a little bit. Um, as we get deeper into the 18th century, machines and especially manufacturing machines begin to play a larger role in the manual arts. How did these play into these politics of technical knowledge? Yes, um, so I, what I do in the last um, section of the book, I analyze how these uh, way political epistemology of the artist really carries over even when the Societe des Arts doesn't exist anymore. And yet former members uh, do produce some technological innovations, significant technological innovations that really materialize conceptions um, of humans, for example, or labor the, or other artisans that were all already in place in the Societe des Arts. And so to give you an example, we have Jacques Vaucanson, who is still celebrated today as these ingenious inventors of automata initially, and then machines for uh, the manufacture of silk and other textile that automated processes of production. And he's often described as a genius ahead of his time, and if his projects failed, it is because no one could understand him. What I see instead in his case is really <clears throat> this materialization of a conception of work men and work women here as uh, de-skilled labor. 
So what Vogelson does uh, when he becomes inspector of silk manufacturers, so he's one of those um, people who um, do achieve a position um, in in French offices, in the in the offices of the French state. He has a formal appointment as inspector of the silk manufacturers, which means that he oversees the production. He makes sure that silk is produced according to rules that the French uh, state uh, states. And, um, and so he produces a number of machines and inventions related to the manufacture of silk. When we look closely of, at how, uh, what these machines were actually doing, these machines were um, taking the automate, automating, sorry, autom mechanizing work but at the same time, they were um, taking manual skills out of the body of artisans and placing them in the machine. I give you an example. The production of silk threads was a very um, complex process that required uh, the skill of very young women because it needed um, thin fingers. It really relied on this knowledge often in, in uh, texts of the time describing this art, we find an emphasis on the knowledge of the fingers, um, the knowledge of these uh, spinners fingers, the hands of the spinners as knowing hands, we find. And it was really up to the spinner to understand what to do in the moment. So it was very difficult to automatize the process because it was so much uh, unpredictable. And so, and in fact, spinners were very well uh, rewarded for their work when they were so skilled as to make high quality silk uh, threads. And so what Vogelson does, he observes how spinners work. He he, he tries to understand what is exactly that they do that can be transferred to the machine so as to make the spinner's work repetitive and replaceable. And so this is what his machines um, do. They reimagine basically the work of spinning and even the role of the machine itself making sure that the worker, the spinner, would not need to be present in the moment and use their own bodily, embodied knowledge, embodied skill. Anyone could do it because now it is the machine that is in charge of the process by, you know, means of, you know, with various um, mechanical um, in, inventions, innovations that um, he introduced, that Vaucanson introduces. And uh, it's very interesting for me to think about this transformation, this new vision of the of the uh, spinner of workers in light, in light of riots that had happened years earlier when Vaucanson for the first time introduced a new um, machine for the manufacture of, of silk, that elicited these incredible 
um, reaction on the part of uh, producers and spinners who really reject this invention. He has, um, that happens in Lyon. He has to flee Lyon disguised as a monk because his life had been threatened. These workers in association with producers, were producers, manufacturers of silk, wanted to kill him because they understood that if his machine were introduced, then um, their own uh, economy, the, the whole system that made sure uh, their life could continue to be what it was, would be completely undermined. And so the first attempt that was 1744 uh, fails in this very um, glowing, in a sense, in this very um, striking way. And then Vaucanson does not give up, but he understands that in order to prevent this kind of riots, he needs to silence the workers by depriving them of what they have, you know, the value that they have in their hands. And so by de-skilling uh, their work, um, he makes sure that anyone can be replaced. No one is really essential. Now it's the machine that has the front stage. It's the machine that is ingenious. It's no longer the, the artist per se. So mm -hmm. I see this as a very intriguing uh, materialization of these discriminatory practices or epistemologies even of the artists that saw themselves as different from other artisans. And in fact, in the writing, artists really, um, um, how should I say, they, they are really um, dismissive of um, of artisans and craftsmen, they say that craftsmen um, work without using their mind. They don't need their mind. It's just rot practice what they do. Whereas artists use always use their mind in coordination with the senses, and so they have this particular kind of intelligence. And so I, I see in Vaucanson's machine really a materialization of this idea of um, workers as basically machines, we would say today. Mm -hmm. uh, so as we're getting closer to the end of the interview, I'm wondering, how do you think this history of the Society of the Arts and of the artists and crafts in, in general, how it reflects on the bigger themes of the Enlightenment? So rather than reflecting the bigger themes of the Enlightenment, what I wanted to do here was to change perspective on, on the Enlightenment. So I'm not trying to redefine the Enlightenment. I am offering a new point of view on the Enlightenment, which is not my own, is the artist's points of, point of view. So I am foregrounding this figure that had never been properly identified before as these learned artisans who doesn't see himself as a savant or as, a, as an artisan. And foreground also the world of the mechanical arts as this place where new conceptions of useful knowledge emerge, where useful really means something that 
goes hand in hand with the commercial and imperial colonial expansion of the state. So my it, it's also a contribution to the history of encyclopedism. So uh, what counts as knowledge in the 18th century, this is best epitomized by the Encyclopédie by Diderot and Alembert. I show that the Encyclopédie is actually a point of arrival, not a starting point, uh, but is the point of arrival of these previous incomplete projects. And the Encyclopédie itself borrows a lot from um, these artists' work, you know, published work on, on the mechanical arts. And so I think in the end, what we see is that I would like uh, for us to think of the Enlightenment not just as a philosophical movement, but also as a set of practices of inclusion and exclusion. So, Paul, last question then. Uh, what are you going to work on next? Oh, okay. So I would like to continue to explore artisanal knowledge in two main ways. Um, one is to look at how some artisans, and again, these are artist artisans, so learned artisans, um, talk about their own education. So what is it that they do to inspire their own work? So what, what kind of experiences are they seeking? Uh, what kind of experiences do they offer each other? What kind of collecting practices do they have? And what is the place for the circulation of this knowledge? And then the other um, project I have still related to artisan, artisans and artisanal culture is the first articulation of um, diseases of artisans. So in 1700, um, we have the publication of the first treatise dedicated to diseases of workers by Bernardino Ramazzini. He's an Italian physician. And this text... Um, it was incredibly popular. It gets translated into many languages. It is originally published in Latin, which means that it was read well beyond Italy, but it's also translated into many other European languages uh, well into the 20th century when occupational, the Institute of Occupational Medicine was uh, first established. So I, I want to understand a little bit more about how this physician went about collecting his knowledge about diseases of artisans. We have similar um, rhetoric on the physician who enters artisans' workshops and homes to ask about what they do, the kind of uh, environment they move in, and the kind of materials that they touch and breathe and absorb through their skin. So it's another way of representing the artisanal world of the early modern period that intrigues me very much and I, you know, this is what I will do next. Well, I very much look forward to reading more of your work on artisans. So, Paola, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Lance. This has been great.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.